Low Burn Media, an evergreen podcast, presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voice. Rebecca Andowski and Kathleen Thomas, two haunting names never forgotten by people in Hampton Roads. They're the first two victims of the Colonial Parkway murders, both found dead this day 30 years ago. To this day, no answers on who killed them. Ten of your side's Andy Fox is looking into this case. Andy, so long to wait. Any new breaks in this mystery? Yeah, Tom and Anita, there are developments, I am told, but nothing imminent with any big announcements from the FBI or Virginia State Police cracking any of the four cases. Tonight, only on 10, an exclusive interview with a former head of the local FBI who was in charge when it all began. Thursday, October 9th, 1986. Kathleen Thomas and Rebecca Andowski. Last seen at Dowski's dorm room at the College of William & Mary. That Thursday night, believed headed to the Colonial Parkway. 10 on your side begins reporting the case. Three days later on Sunday evening, that car, a Honda Civic, was found off the Colonial Parkway. It had been rolled into these bushes, almost into the water. 30 years ago, Irv Wells, now retired, had just arrived as the special agent in charge of the FBI's Norfolk Field Division. He remembers the rage of the killing, overkill he calls it, a lesbian couple taken by surprise on the... Hello and welcome to episode 185 or 186 of Who Killed? I'm your host Bill Huffman and this is a Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast production. On this week's episode, I am again joined by the one and only Bill Thomas, the advocate of all advocates, and unfortunately also the brother of a murder victim of the Colonial Parkway murders back in 1986. And Bill, welcome back to the show. Oh, thank you. I was getting a kick out of the fact that you were guessing whether you were 185 or 186, and my guess would have been not even as good as yours. I just don't remember. They all just kind of, <laughs> I, I could have easily gone back and listened, but you know, hey, you know, cut corners here and there. We'll figure it out. That's right. That's right. So how are you doing, Bill? I'm doing great. It's, uh, we're back to summer here. We were having some really weird, cool weather in Connecticut, and then it started acting like summer again. So we had a couple of beautiful Chamber of Commerce days. Yeah, we exactly were, the same here. We were having uh, like a big art program here. Oh, uh, the, fun. The Yale Summer School of Art and Music is across the street here, and so they were doing a whole thing about community so they were doing art installations all over this small town it was actually pretty cool and the art students are from all over the world and they're very interesting um, young people and really fun to interact and they did this whole thing with us and the house next door they built an old-fashioned clothesline which some people still use here um, and they took all of our laundry and did our laundry I thought this was a nice benefit and then hung all of our clothes out between the two houses to connect the two houses. A funny discussion with our, our neighbor Doreen and her husband Mike and my partner Pamela and me and the artists. And I could see hesitation in the women's eyes. They did not want to have their, how shall we put this, their lingerie hung up on this main street in this little town for all to review. <laughs> <laughs> Can you blame him? <laughs> but Mike and I, my next door neighbor, he was like, well, 
I don't think I care. And I said, I'll tell you what, Mike, we can let people guess whether those boxers are mine or yours. And he said, well, if they have golf clubs on them, they're mine. And I said, and if they have sports cars on them, they're mine. <laughs> so we didn't care, but the women cared. Yeah, a little different, a little different. But, you know, that definitely is a, uh, sounds like a unique experience and event. It was, it was. And then we went to open studios on this beautiful estate where the Yale uh, School of Art is. And we met a whole bunch of the students and got a chance to go into all the different studio spaces that they're working on. So it was actually pretty cool. And it was just a gorgeous weekend. So it was really fun. And you were out camping in the boonies. I was camping in the boonies. Yeah, I was uh, out of service for a few days, and uh, it was uh, it was a good time. Did some uh, trout fishing, fly fishing. Uh, well, I didn't do it, but my buddy did. And uh, I don't know. Hung out you with met wild animals. We saw an antelope, a moose. Uh, yeah, it was it was wild. And then there's just cattle just grazing around the fields in the middle of nowhere in the mountains because you can pay the government, I guess, a minimal amount of money to let them graze on their land or our land, I guess it is <laughs> technically. I'm or, not quite sure how that works. Like I'd be curious about the logistics of it. Like when do you drop the cows off? When do you pick the cows up? Remember the Bundy, uh, I do, yeah. Eamon, that was, yeah. Eamon Bundy. Yeah. yeah. That was a dispute along those lines, wasn't exactly, it? Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but it's definitely a thing. It's weird to be driving in the middle of nowhere and all of a sudden there's 20 or 30 cows just kicking it. And uh, Do they pay any attention to you? Do they have any not really. I mean, interest in you and your if, camping I mean, gear? No, I mean, they'll acknowledge you, like... For the most part, it's they're just doing their thing. They're being cows. <laughs> but they don't run at the SUV thinking, hey, you know, I, I, there's a truck here. That, it's not like driving through. It's, arriving. it's not like driving through a wildlife park, no. <laughs> like, it's not, it's, it's not a, an African uh, safari. Uh, or like visiting your friends on a farm. I mean, I've been to farms where people feed cows from the back of the pickup truck. And man, when you come along and the cows see the truck, they make a beeline for that pickup truck because they know that there's going to be delicious, fresh hay and oats served <laughs> buffet style off the back of the truck. So it's not like that. No, it's not like that at all. But that's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> I've only seen it once or twice, but I did think it was kind of interesting. And they actually make a beeline for the truck and they'll even start bumping into the truck like, feed me hay and oats or it's whatever like, it is sounds cows like eat. Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sort of. <laughs> Amer 2020 style. 2020, whatever year it is, 2020, 2020, who knows. But yes, we're back. And we are here to discuss and continue to discuss the Colonial Parkway murders as well as I mentioned the last week about Catherine Miles' book, Trailed. And that is her book about the Shenandoah murders. And you actually are somewhat involved in the book, or at least you're yeah, uh, I show interviewed up in, in the, it. Yeah, you I show, show up. up in the latter part of the book. Um, let's see. I met Kate about three, three and a half years ago. She was working on the book. 
And she reached out to me and said she wanted to talk to me about the Colonial Parkway murders, which are obviously in Virginia, 1986 to 1989. And the case that she was researching, which is the murder of Julie Williams and Lolly Winans in 1996 at the Shenandoah National Park. And the two incidents, if you want to call them that, the, the murder series in the Colonial Parkway and then the two women that were killed in the Shenandoah are 10 years and about 180 miles apart. So it's not like they're right next door. But she was researching this book and she wanted to come meet with me to spend some time and look at photographs and other evidence that I had and start to kind of compare notes about could there be a relationship between the Colonial Parkway murders and the Shenandoah murders. I find it funny when you are sort of like introduced in the book where she, she, she's like nervous about meeting you in case you're like some kind of crazy guy. And I was just laughing. <laughs> I was just, it was killing me because clearly anybody who knows you, uh, you're not that guy. And she even make, she, she laughs at herself in the book. Cause she's like, well, at least I had nothing to worry about. <laughs> well, and I didn't know about that. In other words, Part of Kate's work as an author is she's talking about her own journey as she investigates the murder of Julie Williams and Lolly Winans in 1996 in the Shenandoah. It's also about Kate's personal journey as an outdoors woman and an advocate and someone that's written about the Appalachian Trail and hiking and access to wilderness, which Kate feels, as I do, that we all should have. I didn't know about this apprehension that she had. So she tells this kind of funny story, and of course I'm learning about it three years later, that she was apprehensive coming to visit me and Pamela, my partner, and our dog Oliver, the dachshund, at this kind of isolated farmhouse that we were renting. We were re renovating the house we live in now, which is also in Connecticut, and while that was going on, we rented another house for a couple of months because you couldn't live in the house while they were doing all this work. So I didn't realize she was apprehensive about coming to visit us. <laughs> but she actually discussed whether or not she wanted to be armed. She was discussing this with her then boyfriend. And uh, they had a whole thing worked out where she was to text him when she arrived and then text him again once she got inside and realized we weren't crazy people or serial killers or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's hysterical because anybody who met you at CrimeCon would be like, yeah, that's like the least likely He's guy. No, I, I not, understand. Not a scary guy. <laughs> not a scary guy, but I also understand too that there's apprehension meeting somebody randomly like that. But uh, yeah, you know. That's just kind of cracked me up because you're just not that guy. Well, and at the same time, Kate's raising some important issues. In other words, women have to be conscious of their own safety. And she was going to an isolated farmhouse in the middle of the winter in rural Connecticut. You know, we're kind of out in the country. And she had spoken to me and we'd emailed. And I think actually... She didn't really have a lot of reason to be nervous because I'd been very upfront, as I always am, who I am, 
why I'm interested in true crime, why we do the Mind Over Murder podcast. You know, all that stuff is pretty much out there. And as you and I have talked about before, Bill, I'm not big on people hiding behind screen names and that kind of thing. I actually want people to know precisely who I am and why I'm interested in a conversation about an unsolved case or whatever it is, because that's important to me. And so, as you and I've talked about, I've signed hundreds of times, literally, on social media, Bill Thomas, comma, brother of Kathy Thomas, comma, Colonial Parkway murders. And even in as far back as a decade or more ago, adding my email and sometimes even my cell phone number to let people know who I was and why I was discussing these issues. So I think Kate had a decent idea who I was. <laughs> and I don't think I'm a very scary guy. So she felt pretty relieved and she confesses in the book she felt a little foolish when she got inside and there's Pamela making this delicious uh, tomato soup and uh, Italian bread. And, and then there's Oliver who is like, are you going to be my new best friend? I'm a very cute dachshund and I like people. <laughs> and so, you know, he, the next thing, you know, we're having a fire and she's sitting inside the house on a snowy day and we're having tomato soup and bruschetta and Oliver sitting in her lap and she realizes maybe I didn't need to be too worried about these people. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Two, two nice people. I'm pretty sure that uh, she, she was pretty ease pretty quickly. And yeah. Uh, yeah. What kind of conversation did you guys have originally about the uh, cases? Well, she's an extremely smart, thorough researcher and a very good writer. And I do recommend that your listeners pick up a copy of Trail. That's really good as if they didn't discover this from you interviewing her a few weeks ago. We've also interviewed Kate about her book. And we'd love to have her back to talk about outdoor access and how can we guarantee people feel safe in places like the Appalachian Trail and out in America's wilderness. But she wanted to sort of compare notes about what she was learning about the murder of Julie Williams and Lolly Winans. And there were some very strong parallels, which I was aware of, between the 1996 murder of Julie Williams and Lolly Winans and the 1986 murder, particularly of my younger sister Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski. And so she wanted to compare notes about like a lot of that kind of stuff. So we ended up kind of going down into a lot of detail and I didn't have full access to my files because we were in the process of moving, but I had a lot of information on my computers and so on. And so I was able to, you know, share documents and, and, you know, email docs to her and, you know, that kind of thing as she and I discussed various aspects of what she was learning. And I don't necessarily subscribe to the theory that the murder of Julie Williams and Lolly Winans is necessarily related to the murder of Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski specifically, but there are a lot of strong parallels between the two cases. And, and what would be some of those parallels? Well, this is taking Kathy and Becky's murder, which is considered the first in the so-called Colonial Parkway murders, and just looking at Kathy and Becky's murder by itself. The murder of Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski and the murder of Julie Williams and Lolly Winans are very similar. You have 
athletic, outdoorsy, lesbian couples murdered in a national park on three-day weekends. Admittedly, these are 10 years apart. Kathy and Becky were murdered over Columbus Day weekend, and Julie and Lolly were murdered over um, Memorial Day weekend. They're both murdered in national parks on three-day weekends. They are both bound with some sort of restraints, which could be rope or leather straps or could even be handcuffs, potentially. Um, they're attacked with knives. They're separated. Their throats are cut without getting too graphic. And they both go missing in these outdoorsy locations. Now, the Colonial Parkway is fairly close to Jamestown, Yorktown, and Colonial Williamsburg, so it's not in the middle of the woods, you know, by miles, but it is a woodsy rural location. Obviously, the Shenandoah National Park is much more mountainous and much more of an isolated location. But the FBI said publicly in 1996, after the murder of Julie Williams and Lolly Winans, that they were exploring substantial similarities. That's the expression they used between the murders of the two lesbian couples, which, as we talked about at the top of the show, it's also 10 years apart, those, these incidents, and it's about 180 miles, so you know, three and a half hours or so from one location to the other. There is a very odd and sad connection between the two sets of murders of these two lesbian couples, and that is that there are four National Park Service rangers who were working at the Colonial National Park in 86 who were then working at the Shenandoah National Park in 1996. Now, I'm not implying that any of those four rangers are murderers or anything like that. Um, but even one individual ranger, and we're not going to name names here, but one individual ranger who was a person of interest and was interviewed regarding Kathy and Becky's murder while he was working there was working at the Shenandoah National Park 10 years later, and despite the fact that this person had been interviewed and polygraphed 10 years prior, somehow the National Park Service permitted this guy to be one of the investigators looking into the Julie Williams Lolly Winans murder. And I've never received an adequate, excuse me, adequate explanation for how a person who is regarded as a suspect, a person of interest, can be allowed to be an investigator in a similar case 10 years later. And this is when the FBI is saying the two murders of the two couples are substantially similar. I have never heard any kind of acceptable explanation as to why the National Park Service and the FBI thought that was a good idea. I would say that that definitely is a red flag. I mean, not to say that this person has any involvement, but... If you screwed up one investigation, <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't really feel like you should be put in charge of any other investigations. That's just... No, it doesn't to me. And this same ranger, by the way, went on to have a lot of additional problems. He was disciplined. 
and he was strongly criticized for his leadership in an investigation in the uh, National Park um, at the Grand Canyon some years later. So this guy's got a pretty problematic career, at least incidents in his career. I'm not saying that makes him a murderer, but it is very strange to me that this guy is permitted to be involved in investigations where there could be potentially a link. It, I find it very disturbing. From what I've read, the National Park Service sometimes, sometimes behaved like the Catholic Church, and we were raised Catholic up in Boston. And the idea of transferring troubled rangers from one location to another reminds me a lot of the Catholic Church. And apparently I'm not the only person that's ever pointed this out. I was so just about to say that and, you know, just what you realize, actually, though, it's not a Catholic Church, strictly just a Catholic Church thing. I mean, it's a Boy Scout thing. Yeah, I, and I was an Eagle Scout, too. And my father, <laughs> my father was an Eagle Scout. Not once did he ever ask me to be in, you know, if I was interested in being Boy, hmm. Boy Scouts. Oh, really? And, of course, you know, later in life, now that I'm involved with all this is my business. It just makes me question why he never said anything to you about why he would want you to steer clear of the scouts. No, you? not at all. But he probably would have said something along those lines if he did, you know, if there was something shady, but it was weird. It may have just been my personality that I don't mm -hmm. take, I don't take orders well. So, you know, it's you irreverent. I can't see it, Bill. Yeah, you know, <laughs> never like to be told what to do. So it's just, uh, yeah, he probably saw that as a, a clash that could happen. So, yeah, maybe. Or he saw something that he didn't want me to get involved with. I don't know. But, yeah. I mean, even look at the Baptist church. I mean, they did the same thing. You yeah. Know, you know, everybody's just covering up everybody's dirty work. I mean, it's it just makes me appreciate uh, spotlight that much more, you know, from the Boston Globe, you know, and like yeah, just the, having the, to have that journalistic ability to tell a long form story like we can do on podcasts is very difficult. And the fact that the Globe is one of the leading uh, papers in the country when it comes to deep investigative reporting, I think is incredible. And uh, it's a it's a gift to anybody who's appreciative of the art of journalism and not just the glamour of clickbait and, you know, quick, fast headlines and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's, yeah. I think it's so vital. Well, my dad was a naval officer. And of course my, my dad, my older brother, Richard and my younger sister, Kathy, uh, are the first father, son, daughter graduates of the Naval Academy. But after my dad got out of the Navy, um, we moved back up to Lowell, Massachusetts. And so one of the Catholic churches in our hometown was ground zero for one of those sexual abuse scandals as part of the Boston Diocese. And, of course, we grew up reading the Boston Globe and the spotlight section, which ultimately highlighted the abuses within the Catholic Church. Oh, and by the way, that that movie spotlight is very, very good. If Excellent you're, movie. 
ever looking for something, I'm sure it's on Netflix or Amazon or HBO or one of the platforms. I, I hate to it, say it, when I find a good movie like that, I probably watched it 10 times. I've, I've at least seen that movie 10 or 15 times. Yeah, it's really, really good. It's in the it's top just, five journalistic movie, journalism movies. I just, I'd say All the President's Men, it's got to be number one. Yeah. And then uh, it's kind of a mixture after that. I mean, I like The Post. But I think uh, Spotlight probably be number two. Yeah, it's definitely on my short list of, of movies that I can watch over and over again. And sometimes if I'm tuning by, I'll just, if it's on, I'll just stop and watch it for a little while and just watch a few scenes. It's really good. And of course, you know, my family's from the Boston area, so we, we totally get the vibe of the, of the city and the way people were so uncomfortable with the sexual abuse and moving forward. And as you said a moment ago, Bill, it's not unique to the Catholic Church. We've seen it any number of times in in institutions where, and I've said this about the Colonial Parkway murders as well, I'm troubled by this. It feels like institutional interests supersede investigative concerns. And I feel like that's happened in the Colonial Parkway murders and in the still unsolved murder of Julie Williams and Lolly Winans at the Shenandoah. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 when you were talking about that uh, officer, you said he had some more disciplinary issues. What were those issues? Correct. Well, as I understand it, and again, I get these things from law enforcement, and I'm not implying the man is a murderer, but I'm disturbed when law enforcement sources tell me this particular National Park Service investigative ranger who served in both locations, the Colonial Parkway and the Shenandoah. He was disciplined for um, what we would say now is sexual harassment, pulling over women on the parkway, um, hitting on them, using National Park Service resources to determine their locations, in other words, he was using computer systems at the time to find out these women's names and addresses, you know, from information from when he pulled them over. So he was acting in inappropriate ways with these female motorists. And, you know, of course he's married. And at the same time, he was also accused of abusing suspects, of, of beating suspects. Now remember, these are not just National Park Service Rangers, you know, with the Smokey the Bear hat. These guys are cops basically in the woods so when he pulls someone over or he was arresting someone they might be suspected of wrongdoing he was accused of abusing suspects and he kept being transferred from one location to another location just like the catholic priests from my time in boston they, you know they, they just moved these troubled individuals from one location to another and my understanding is that uh, that's happened a lot in the National Park Service, which makes me sad. It's an interesting dynamic for sure, because why wouldn't they just fire the individual? I mean, I get it, unions and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah, but, but this, this is more about <laughs> protecting the, the, the good name of the National Park Service. Kate touches on this in her book, too. The idea, and I've criticized them for this too, um, they don't want it known, for example. They didn't want it known that a couple had been brutally murdered 
in the in the Colonial Parkway, or that it, there were a series of unsolved murders. Um, the these institutions like Colonial Williamsburg and William and Mary, where my sister's girlfriend Rebecca Dowski was a senior. They didn't want it getting out that terrible things had happened inside that national park. And the exact same thing happened up in the Shenandoah. At first, they were doing their best, in my opinion, to keep a lid on the murder of Julie Williams and Lolly Winans because we don't want to terrify all those people that are there for the Memorial Day weekend, even though they actually may have been in danger. Like, there was a there was a brutal murderer wandering around in the woods up there at the Shenandoah National Park. You sure the mayor of they didn't they didn't even let the people know. Did the mayor of the city that Jaws was filmed in take over charge of this investigation well, or something? Because I mean, it's like the same thing. It's like hey, you know, thing. like we got this big giant shark, but man, we got to open up for the weekend because we got to make our money. Well, it's the same thing. It really is. And if you don't think that Williamsburg as a community, which is completely tourist-driven. Been there, yep. And these other locations don't suppress, and I'm using that word deliberately, suppress word getting out that, you know, people have been brutally murdered in these parks and that they might not be 100% safe. Oh, and by the way, they're also extremely lightly patrolled so that there aren't really a lot of people in charge that is in a law enforcement capacity versus how many people are coming and going in these national parks. It, you know, look, I love the outdoors and I love our national park system, but it makes me uncomfortable when I find out that when terrible things happen, their biggest concern is making certain that the word doesn't get out. We experience that here in the ski world. Uh, they definitely don't report all the injuries that occur or avalanches that occur because why would they do that? It just it does them. It's a negative PR story. So uh, I get it. And it's stupid and it, it's not safe for people and the, I mean, if you're letting somebody just move from one location to the other just because they're, you know, they're causing trouble, and then, and then it's just like all these red flags pop up. I mean, this goes for all these different agencies and all these different churches that we're talking about because, you know, they're easily fixed if you just paid attention to the patterns of these individuals, like the guy you're talking about. Yeah, he's pulling people over. He's using his credentials as a national park ranger to be, you know, authoritative and put these women or put these people in positions that make them feel like they have to deal with them because he's authority. And that's an abuse of authority, as we've all known. After we learned about this guy, people started coming forward. Now, this is to us. This is to the family of the murder victim. And, of course, as we've talked about, Bill, I've really put myself out there publicly over the last 12 years or so in the Colonial Parkway murders because we felt that if we didn't do that, the FBI would just go back to slow-walking this investigation, which is exactly what they've done. Because I've put myself out there quite a bit, People are now contacting us and 
providing information to the families about problems they've run into in places like the Colonial Parkway National Park, being pulled over by officers and, and sexually harassed or being pulled over by people and they don't even know who they are. Like here it is in some cases years later, they're not 100% certain who actually stopped them because there's all these different agencies. You've got federal, state, local, and all of these military security agencies all using the Colonial Parkway. And there's a tremendous amount of military. This is not far from the Norfolk and, and other major military facilities. So the, there's even a CIA operation, a major CIA training facility on the Colonial Parkway, just a couple of miles from where Kathy and Becky were murdered, uh, called Camp Perry. And these, all these different offices use the Colonial Parkway as a shortcut, as a cut through. It's very lightly patrolled, it's lightly traveled, especially at night. And so these military operations and others use the Colonial Parkway. But now we find out years later, and I'm talking about hundreds and hundreds of people have these very odd encounters along the Colonial Parkway. Someone is pulling these people over who presents as law enforcement, but they're still not even certain who these people were. And there may have actually been imposters mixed in there where people were putting lights in the grills of their car and that kind of thing and rolling up on some of these couples along the Colonial Parkway or pulling them over as if they were law enforcement when they actually are wannabe cops. Yeah, I mean, you kind of see that in a lot of cases where people will impersonate a police officer to kind of get them to drop their guard because, well, you don't really have much choice. I mean, let's say it's a real officer and you think it's a fake officer and you do something stupid and, well, in this day and age, you're liable to get shot. Um, yeah. I'm just saying that it's one of those things that it's very easy to pose as a, as a police officer. And I could totally imagine that that was the case in some of these murders on the Colonial Parkway because, like you've said before, there was complicit, uh, compl oh God, compliance, I guess that would be the word. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, not a huge struggle. Um, there weren't a lot of defense wounds in a lot of these individuals. So that leads you to believe that they had a gun of some sort. Right. And or knife. one of the things, one of the things that the um, FBI said to uh, my family, actually at my parents' dining room table, this would have been after only the first murder had taken place. This is Kathy and Becky's murder. So a few days after that murder, my parents and the family, we had gathered up in Lowell, Massachusetts, where we're from, and two FBI agents from the FBI office came to brief us on what they knew. Now, the rest of the Colonial Parkway murders haven't happened yet. But one of the things they said to us was, we believe your sister and Ms. Dowski were approached by an authority figure. And we're all sitting around the dining room table, and I said, I'm sorry, I don't understand. What is an authority figure? We didn't know what that meant. And I found this interesting. The FBI agents kind of hemmed and hawed which surprised me. 
Most FBI agents that I've met in the years since, and these two people, were usually pretty polished, and they had their answers, if they were willing to answer your question, at the ready. And I was surprised by their obvious discomfort, and they sort of shifted in their seats a little bit, and then they said, well, by authority figure, we mean someone in law enforcement or presenting as such. So even from the very beginning of the Colonial Parkway murders, they thought that Kathy and Becky had been pulled over parking on the Colonial Parkway looking out over the water, and they think someone rolled up on them and at least interacted in a way that was non-threatening, which is what you were saying a moment ago, Bill, about compliance. So if someone comes up to you, and obviously I've had a gun stuck in my face in a, in a robbery, in a store, um, many years ago, you do whatever the person says if they're holding a gun in your face. But if someone approaches you in a, in a way that you think they're a law enforcement officer, most people are going to comply and they're going to do what they're told. Now, what they think happened in several of these examples, including Kathy and Becky's, is at some point they figured out this person's up to no good. In other words, this isn't as legit as it appeared when the officer first appeared on scene. Um, and so there was a struggle between my sister Kathy and this individual or perhaps this pair of individuals. But that's kind of unusual. In most examples, they think that the victims in the Colonial Parkway murders seem to kind of go along at least to a point and then your sister things went south but i would say that would be instinctual because of your sister's background and and being from the you know the navy was she was in the navy right yeah yeah she was in the navy and she'd gone to annapolis she's in the yeah. second class so with she's, women she's not gonna take annapolis. any shit no and she's also that's her personality kathy was absolutely brilliant and extremely athletic she'd taken a extensive martial arts training courses. I remember when she was home at the holidays or something like that, she was showing us the different moves they had learned because, you know, they were well-trained for hand-to-hand -hand combat, actually. Not that you hope that that would ever happen to a naval officer, but it can and does. And my dad did three tours in Vietnam. And, you know, Navy is not... Navy service is not always about sitting on a ship somewhere. Um, my dad was a um, was somebody who did three tours in Vietnam, but his first tour was aboard very small boats patrolling rivers, and he was involved in firefights, and you know was actually very very close in terms of frontline combat. Kind of what? So Kathy was prepared for that, and. Kathy was also somebody who did not suffer fools gladly. And if she realized this guy was up to no good, I think there probably was some sort of uh, physical confrontation based on she yeah. is somebody who has some defensive wounds on, on her. And although ultimately this individual or this let, the pair of individuals, I guess, is a possibility, they were able to kill both Kathy and Becky and these other young people. So they've got some sort of one-up on these people.
but there was significant struggle in Kathy and Becky's example. Well, that's a good, I mean, that's good for, I know it doesn't make you feel any better, but it has to give you some sense at least she fought and she was like, I'm not taking shit. Yeah. Well, and you don't like the idea of, of any of these young people. There's eight young people, four couples. You don't like the idea of them, you know, just quietly going to slaughter. Um, you'd, you'd like to think that they were able to stand up for themselves to some extent. And that's one of the things about the Shenandoah murders, that those were grisly. Um, they were, yeah. Very bloody crime scene. Uh, they were left in their sleeping bags. I, I, you know, I... I don't know, you know, I mean, I guess that there is a similarity in the patterns of the authorities, you know, mm -hmm. we talked about that before the show uh, a little bit, and I think that that is the connection between those. I mean, is it possible that they're not connected? No. They could, they be, could connected. be connected. And one of, there's all other, there's one other very strong parallel that's worth talking about, which is very unfortunate. We don't know why this is, but the FBI has dragged their feet terribly in the Colonial Parkway murders investigation and in the Shenandoah National Park investigation. And if you are unfortunate enough to be killed in a national park, the FBI is the lead agency from the word go. So local law enforcement is not involved. So local, county even state law enforcement. They may be there in an assist role, but the FBI takes the lead. One of the things that Kate Miles talks about in her book, and then I'm also working on a book on the Colonial Parkway murders, we're seeing this bizarre, I don't know if it's unwillingness, but there's foot dragging by the FBI, particularly now in terms of using advanced forensics that might actually solve these cases all these years later. You know, we're talking about cases now that go back 25 and even 35 years. But there is evidence there that needs to be retested within the limits of 2022 technology. When this series of murders happened back in 86, DNA hadn't even really come out of the lab at that point. So it wasn't used in investigations like this, but it is now. And so the FBI very strangely has refused to move these murders along. I have been told so many times, well, your sister's case is a cold case, which makes it the lowest possible priority. We're waiting as long as a year. I'm not exaggerating. One year for test results when our agents send in evidence to be retested at FBI Quantico. And then if they don't get the information they're looking for there, they might send in additional information, but then it'll take, I'm not exaggerating, another year. So this is insane. FBI Quantico is so clearly backlogged with a tremendous volume of cases they're currently handling. And then one other thing that needs to be pointed out is the decision to redeploy the FBI as an anti-terrorism agency after 9-11, which I'm not opposed to, but I don't think anybody anticipated the unintended consequences of redeploying the FBI as an anti-terrorism agency. 90 cents on the dollar now of the FBI's budget 
is going to anti-terrorism. So that only leaves 10 cents on the dollar for everything else the FBI was originally working on. And so guess what? Cases like ours, the Colonial Parkway murders, the Shenandoah Park murders and others just get ratcheted down to the point where we're not being aggressively worked, particularly on the forensic side. I would say at this point in time, I would think that they would start maybe even a separate division of the FBI for this specific thing. Because again, we have so many unsolved murders. We have tons of retired FBI agents. I know I'm beating the drum that I beat last week. But again, at 57, these guys still want to work. Yeah, they obviously do. And they end up continuing their careers. I would love to see many of these experienced agents stay with it and help us work on the 250,000 cold case homicides across the United States, as we talked about last time. Yeah, I just think it would be a, a boon for those guys and for a lot of the families across this country that don't have any answers. And it's not to say that they could solve every single crime. I mean, not every single crime is solvable, but there are a lot of them that can be. And I feel like we need to be focused on that. Obviously, terrorism is a thing that we need to be concerned about. But domestic mm -hmm. terrorism has become a huge problem. And, you know, again, we have Homeland Security. Like, the, the, the money and the resources should be there for this type of thing. It just feels like we're being short-changed on what our tax dollars are going towards. Well... I can say that for the Colonial Parkway murders families, now remember you have eight victims in our case, they're ready to spit nails. They're so angry at the endless foot dragging and excuses with the FBI. And I have to criticize the Virginia State Police as well because they handle two of the Colonial Parkway murders incidents that happened outside the confines of the National Park. The go slow, we'll get around to it when we get around to it approach is just not working. And at the same time, they're taking forever to move this case forward. Our parents are literally dying waiting for answers. We've lost eight of the 16 parents in the Colonial Parkway murders. They've died waiting for answers as to what happened to their sons and daughters in the Colonial Parkway murders, and I think there's no excuse for that. Not going to get any argument from me. I think it's uh, a problem that needs to be addressed, and there's no excuse for it not being addressed. And hopefully we will figure things out, but uh, I don't have much hope at the moment because, you know, there's not really a big public pressure uh, movement on this type of thing. I mean, we do it. We talk about it all the time. But, you know, when you see things on TV, like the media, like mainstream media, they don't cover this kind of crap. I mean, and I don't mean to say it's crap. I just mean it's that they're just like kind of like what we talked about at the beginning where, you know, they're more about the glamour stories and the, you know, the, the hot topic of the day. And if you ever do see like a little clip about this, that, or the other, it usually comes at the end of like a national news broadcast. Like let's say 
um, yeah, like there's movement in that in the case where there hasn't been any movement. Maybe they would shove that in the last package on the news for the night. I mean, it's just it's it. There's a lot of priority issues I have here. Oh, I totally agree. But I think at the same time, if people understood that there are 250,000 cold case homicides scattered across the United States that need to be investigated, I think if people understood that there are a quarter of a million people who've been murdered, whose cases are not currently being aggressively worked, I think that's a national scandal. I really do. And that will do it for this week's episode of Who Killed? Thank you guys so much for listening. And thank you to Bill Thomas for taking time out of his busy schedule. He is a super advocate. And again, always awesome to talk to him and get his insights. I will be dropping another episode with Bill next Friday. That is the final third episode of this little uh, mini-series about the Colonial Parkway murders. And I suggest you research that case if you haven't already and again uh i drop new episodes every friday and if you want to follow me on twitter you can at bill huffman three as well as if you want to contribute to the show you can do so via venmo with my username at bill dash huffman dash three or via paypal with my email address bill huffman 123 at yahoo.com and again That is this week's episode of Who Killed? So until next time, everyone stay healthy and be safe. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.